Welcome to Working Dog Radio. Broadcasting the bite. All right, let's talk about training. Uh, we're going to be at HITS in Scottsdale, Arizona this year, 2020, August 18th through the 21st. Eric and I are actually going to be instructing. Uh, so head over to HITS K9, letter K number nine dot net. Get signed up. Don't wait till the last minute like I know all of you people do. Head over and get signed up now before the prices increase. RayAllen.com. If you own a dog, train dogs of any sort, pet dogs, working dogs, any dog you could have, RayAllen.com, one-stop shop for anything you need. Stick around during the podcast. Listen for the discount codes, RayAllen.com, best in the business. Yeah, one of our favorite partners who signed on for the rest of this year is Dogtra. Uh, excellent remote collars and the ball trainer. I got like four of those things at the kennel. They're awesome. Popper and a dropper. I've got the Pro and the first version. Um, and one of my favorites is the 1900S. Head over to Dogtra.com and check out everything they got. And then listen in the, in the middle of the episode for the discount code. If you want a great dog, great training, and want to go hang out in Florida and do all that, especially in the wintertime, our great friends at Southern Coast Canine, uh, they're amazing down there. They've been doing it a long time. they got single-purpose, dual-purpose trainer schools, handler schools, admin schools down in the Daytona, Florida area, southerncoastcanine.com. And one of our favorite 501s is the guys from Georgia Canine Foundation. After dogs retire, there's a lot of associated costs, and the departments generally don't cover those. It's on the handler to, to cover that. Those guys at the Georgia Police Canine Foundation take care of those dogs post-retirement. Head over to the website, check it out, buy some T-shirts, donate some money, and take care of the dogs after they get done working. So if you uh, want a kennel, you want to be in a kennel business or you have one you need to expand, horizonstructures.com is amazing. They will show up at your place, prefab, pre-built kennel, plug it into your sewer, into your water, into your power, on your property, drop it, hook up, put dogs in it that day. It's amazing, horizonstructures.com. I want to bring attention to a seminar that's going to be happening May 4th through the 7th up in Toronto. It's going to be the 2020 CPCA seminar with lectures and uh, actual work. Some of the instructors that are going to be there are former podcast interviewees and friends of ours like Rigney, Cameron Fordon, and who else they got down there? I think, um, isn't Nesbitt there? Yeah, I think so. It looks like a, an amazing setup, man, with lectures and actual field exercises. And where it's located is just... Just north of uh, Toronto, so yeah, I mean, you don't necessarily have to fly there. Most people from you know at least the northern parts of the of the United States can actually drive up there. Yeah, in like five or six hours. Looks, so looking it, at the flyer, man, it looks really cool. Yeah, so it's four days. Uh, it's four hundred bucks a person. Uh, lunch and breakfast and a banquet dinner, um, and then they're going to have an Iron Dog competition entry also. But it's in uh, just outside of Toronto. If you want information on how to get there and what's going on and get signed up, be sure to hit up Constable Matt Aboffs at the Bar Police Station Services Canine Unit at area code 705-627-9893 or M-A-B-O-F is in Frank, S is in Sam, and then Bar Police. Police.ca, that's B A 
rriepolice.ca. Same thing with Constable John Lamont. It's going to be J Lamont, L A M O N T, at the same.ca. So at barpolice.ca. Yeah, it should be a good seminar. Um, our buddy Brad, who's up there, we've wanted to have him on the podcast before, never been able to make contact. But yeah, this should be a uh, should be a great seminar. Everybody hit it up. Yeah, check out CanadianPoliceK9.com, letter K number nine. That you can register online and everything on there. It's, it's going to be a good one. May 4th to the 7th, 2020. Yep. Go get them. All right. We are back. Working Dog Radio broadcasting the bite. I am Ted Summers uh, from a springy Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, with me, as always, is Eric Stambro from Canton, Ohio. Eric, uh, <laughs> is this still winter up there? <laughs> yeah. It wasn't too bad today. It's just raining. It, it never can just fucking be 45 and nice. And and March is a terrible month here, but whatever. Yeah, it's tired uh, of talking about the weather every freaking time. I'm like an old man. Look here, <laughs> damn weather. Yeah, it's about to get windy here, um, but it's gonna be nice. We're gonna get tracking done this week. Um, I got a small handler school going on. Actually, it's kind of like a refresher more than anything for a dude from Kansas. Um, Travis is here with our trainer school. Uh, we got a bunch of green dogs are working and a bunch of puppies. Uh, so, yeah. We had uh, one of my patrol dogs had to get a tooth replaced the other day. Um, that big-ass Malinois on one of the tribal nations here, that 130-pound Malinois, he uh, he knocked a tooth out. So, yeah, he's got a big titanium one now. So, other than that, ain't nothing been going Great. on. Yeah. You got your building up and running finally, right? Yeah, I got... Um Got the keys over the weekend. There's still guys in there. So the guy who owns the building owns pretty much everything in our town, uh, in our city, as far as commercial goes. He's like revitalized the place. Great dude. My wife is his realtor. So um, he's. This is an interesting building, man. So this building is. It's 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 probably five hundred thousand square feet, um, and that's not a lie. It's it's a half a million square feet, um, broken up into different sections. The section that I'm leasing is an office. It's two-story offices. It's um, between 14,000 and 21,000 square feet, depending on how I break it up, of hallways, offices, and um, room, you know, as many rooms as I need for anything. Actually, you can get lost in it. Um, but the, the building is interesting because it's the original offices of the Diebold, which is a corporation here in, in Canton. And... Um, Elliot Ness used to be the president of Diebold after he left the Treasury Department. He got hired and in, in, worked at Diebold, and so his office is in there where I'm training at. But here's here's the weird thing, dude. So there's a basement that's uh -oh. it's kind of out of play from where I'm at. You can get to it pretty easily through the warehouse section. But um, down in the basement, right in the middle of it, is one grave. There's a tombstone. What? And some fake flowers and shit there. Yeah, it's a grave. And it's been there forever. And I'm, uh, so like one of my handlers, Dave, his wife used to work there years and years and years ago. She goes, oh, did you see the grave? We used to have to walk by it every freaking time we wanted to walk from one section to the other. And I'm like, <laughs> uh, what the hell? What, what's this one grave doing in the middle? And there was some sort of loophole, I'm told, where they, they were, they bought, a cemetery they built this on top of a cemetery or something and they couldn't couldn't tear the cemetery out or something unless they left one grave it was some weird thing well sure as fuck there's a grave down there one grave it's weird that is not creepy at all no, <laughs> no. and not, not at all. so the guys are in there working 
Yeah, there's still guys in there working for me because I'm like, listen, I'm not ready to be running yet. So, to, you know, they're, they're getting all the lights and just getting everything done for me and while I'm loading it up with stuff. And I'm like, do you guys hear that? What was that? That's going to be me forever, every fucking day. Do you hear that? What was that? Like the ghost hunter shows. Excellent. So <laughs> it's be like it was when we were in West Virginia with HRD and that fucking prison that was so creepy. Holy cow! Oh man, West Virginia yep. State Penitentiary. For all those listening, the ghost shows are true. That place is creepy as shit. Um, even though the special <laughs> operations guys are like, I've been here all the time. We don't see anything. I'm like, yeah, I don't believe that. So um, yeah. tonight, so we've done um, a couple of search and rescue episodes, and they always are uh, well downloaded. I look at the numbers all the time, and we always uh, have quite a, f- a bit of interest in these, and we always generate a lot of comments and a lot of uh, feedback from everybody that listens. I- I'll be honest with you. My forte um, is not search and rescue. Um, it's not Eric's either. Um, we've done a few dogs here, and they're mainly green, like where I kind of start them. Um, the last episode we had, um, with Margo and then we had the one with Daryl, um, uh, where we talk about like, we hear police canine handlers bitch about certifications. And then we listened to those guys talk about certification. I was like, I don't, I don't ever want to hear you complain again, ever about your 30 minute certification for USPCA or Napwata or whatever your state certification is or how long it takes. Cause that is, I mean, these guys do all kinds of other crazy shit. So, uh, we went out and we tried to find, um, another search and rescue guy, uh, or girl that uh, was a little bit different than what we've already had on. And we ended up finding Jake Hutchinson, uh, who runs an avalanche dog. So, Jake, how are you? I'm good. How are you guys? Doing great, man. So, um, I guess, you know, give us a little bit of background um, and how we – it's like you just got off the mountain like half an hour ago, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm here in uh, Summit County, Colorado, um, kind of bouncing between training dogs and training uh, – patrollers avalanche forecasters and so uh yeah we just got down off a basin it's slightly colder here than it is in ohio right now and um <laughs> yeah uh walk the dog around the hotel and now we're now we're here so um, yeah summit county is cool on here at least it's not a, i mean it summit is. county yeah at breckenridge every you know what when i lived up there i used to live in aspen for years and did some forecasting and stuff at one of the sheriff's office up there and for their like backcountry stuff. But I, the coldest I have ever fucking been was in Breckenridge. And for whatever reason, it'd be 40 in Aspen and it'd be negative 40 in Breckenridge. And I don't know why it's always just the coldest fucking place in the world. (laughs) Yeah. It's the damn, it's the damn wind. You know, I think all the places I go from Alaska to, I I tell people, I think big sky, Montana and Breckenridge, Colorado, they're going to have to have an arm wrestle because they are hands down the coldest places I've been. And I've, I've been some cold, big mountains, but yeah, I don't know. It was, I was actually here three weeks ago. It was 37 below zero while we were out training. So um, it was 18, eight, 18 degrees today with a 30 mile an hour wind. So today nope. was, today was balmy. <laughs> Man. No. And everybody, yeah, I just put those over. two places on my bucket list. <laughs> never <laughs> visit. Not fucking go. So what <laughs> I just wrote it down. Fuck <laughs> Breckenridge. Well, it, I, I mean, hashtags. We're going to get some hate mail. So I, every, the first time I went over there for training one day and they were like, Oh, we're going to Brecken fridge. I'm like, Oh, LOL. Why do they call it that? And they're like, you about to find out. I'm like, shit, it's like 30 here. They're like, uh huh. Dudes are grabbing yep. like extra jackets. I'm like, what the hell's wrong with you guys? I found out. <laughs> yeah. It's fucking cold over there for sure. Oh, man. So um, you're in Summit County. You got off the mountain. Um, so how did you get to where you're at right now? You started way back in the day, back in the Marines, correct? Yeah. So I uh, 
I went to Marine Corps literally the day after I graduated high school, um, right in the middle of the first Gulf War in 1991, and uh, did my did a short active duty stint. I got into a um, program called the Platoon Leaders Class, and what that did was it sent me back home to go in the Marine Corps Reserve, go to school, and I was guaranteed a slot in officer school and then probably flight school if I passed a few tests. Um, so I came home. I was doing that, um, realizing that going to school and uh, doing the reserves wasn't paying my bills. So I got a job ski patrolling. I grew up, my dad was a ski patroller. And uh, pretty quickly, you know, I, we had a guy there who had a, a long-haired German shepherd who worked for the park service and the ski resort as a, you know, I, I loosely used the term validated avalanche dog because back then it was pretty, pretty uh, self-validating. Um, anyway, this guy was going to nursing school and uh, I saw the need for someone to A, bring the dog to work every day and B, start working with it or keep working with it. So my first dog I worked with was had already done a bunch of work, was actually at the twilight of her working career. Um, she, she actually received some presidential awards for some fines in the Tetons. And um, so I kind of stumbled into it, you know, and back then what we did then, what we do now is, has thankfully evolved dramatically. Um, from there, I got my own dog, um, worked with a bunch of other dogs and um, became part of an organization called Wasatch Backcountry Rescue, which is a conglomerate of nine ski resorts and five county sheriffs in Salt Lake um, ended up on the as the vice president there and happened to be doing that at a time when there were a lot of avalanche accidents in the in the Wasatch range and so I got deployed a lot um, both as a dog handler and as a rescue leader and various other things and um, as I transitioned through various dogs and, and that and I, I started leave ski patrolling um, I started getting asked to instruct it, you know, a ski resort would call me and ask if I wanted to come train their dogs or work with their handlers. And then I started working at some formal dog schools. And um, about 2011, I got out of ski patrolling entirely. My last working dog had died. And so I really focused on training other people's dogs, but also kind of expanding my own repertoire, my own knowledge. And, um, you know, it's fast forward to today and, can't tell you how many dog schools I've taught in how many different countries, but you know, I've gotten the opportunity to, to take my dog to Switzerland. I took a dog to Canada and got to go through their programs and you know, I've I've grabbed a little bit of what everyone does and and uh now I get I get hired to be a consultant and I, if you can hear my I got an eighteen month old male Malinois that I just started, um about a year and a half ago, just under a year and a half ago and back in the game. Um with a validated dog. So let, let's back up to 1991, where you're, you go in the day after, day after high school into the Marine Corps, um, in, right in the middle of the first Gulf War. Uh, funny story, not as cool as yours, but I <laughs> was working at the Crazy Horse in Myrtle Beach as a DJ at the strip club. And when we <laughs> invaded, when we, when we invaded, uh, when the war kicked off, I went to work that night. And there was this big, huge, giant console TV in there, in the thing. And all the strippers were standing in front of the TV crying. Uh, it's still one of my favorite images. And uh, they just stand in front of the crying. And Shit. I'm like, well, fuck, go, go take your top off. We got fucking work. We got money. To- <laughs> let's go. Let's go. <laughs> fucking cry. Strippers yeah. crying. So. Have a dog ready. <laughs> so, let- <laughs> right. Yeah. Have a dog ready. Have a stripper. Have a girl ready. <laughs> I, I got to confess, I'm, I'm a Hollywood Marine. I was the West Coast, but uh, um, yeah, I, I, it was interesting. I, 
I went to boot camp as the the um, the air war was starting and the war was over before I got out. You know, no. <laughs> it was a weird it was a weird experience. You know, they were telling us every day that we were going straight to war and all this stuff, and and the war was over by the time we got out in September. It was a it was an interesting little time to be in the military for sure. I could see the uh, I could see the drill sergeants using that as an excuse to just gas you more. We're going oh, over yeah. there. They've got gas <laughs> and just oh, just yeah. throwing you in yeah. the in the. So uh, from my previous life, uh, the Wasatch is a super active area in terms of avalanches. It's kind of like the trifecta of terrain, uh, weather, uh, weather patterns, and everything else. So in terms of forecasting um, in the lower 48, with the exception of some place in Washington State um, and some places in California, you get some <laughs> pretty gnarly fucking slides there. And so, and, and on top of that, the backcountry is super open. Um, so... You know, talk a little bit about the kind of the process of what a, aside from they're finding people that are buried. Um, <clears throat> for those that are listening that don't understand, like, how you find somebody in a slide, um, even search and rescue handlers should listen to this and you're, like, in the central portion of the country. You don't have mountains. It's a super complex exercise and it's dangerous as shit because you can still be buried again. Um, and then you've got everything else going on in terms of weather. Um, so talk a little bit about how the dog interacts uh, with the handler and with the rest of the team, um, and then talk about like one of one of those scenarios looks like in terms of um, your infill and your exfill. If you have to be helicoptered in, if you guys do like what we used to do in Colorado with the snow with the snowcats and with the snowmobiles and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, the the first challenge is time. You know, like a, the average person buried in an avalanche only survives about fifteen minutes. You know, it's it's like seven depending which stats you look at now it's 50 to 70 percent survive 15 minutes and after that it drops dramatically to less than 20 percent so time is our first challenge um and getting there um often we don't even get notified until that time window is closed and so most of the time we are doing body recoveries unfortunately um but we do help with the rapid closure for families etc you know so yeah you get a call you go out there um you know, these are air sensing dogs and um, they are trained on super generic human scent because, you know, we we're not tracking. You know, you guys both smell different than I do. Smells different than the guy standing outside the window here right now. So we have to cue these dogs, you know, like imprinting is a real interesting process here um, because it's not a specific odor. It's general human scent. And depending what you're wearing today and how scared you were and your adrenaline and all the other stuff and what soap you use, you smell different today than you're going to smell tomorrow. And so it's a real interesting process to put these dogs through. But basically what we're doing is we get out there, we make the safe or make the scene as safe as we can. Um, and you're right. Sometimes, you know, if there's a chance of a live recovery, my risk threshold might go way up. You know, if that window is closed and we're at an hour or two hours, my risk threshold goes way down and we're going to do things like use explosives and do other things to make the scene safe. Um, and so we, you know, back up, deploy there, snowcats, helicopters, snowmobiles, um, cars. I, I've done it all. I've, I've been in the back of a um, trailer towed behind a snowmobile with my dog and, and two other dog teams. Um I've been in helicopters. I've been in all sorts of, you know, in Canada, they short haul the dogs into the scene on helicopters. Um, a little bit trickier to do that in the U.S. without the restrictions. But um, these dogs have to get used. Like we talk about environmentals, like these dogs have to be confident and have nerve strength around anything and everything. 
And that includes explosives. You know, we might be out there throwing explosives to make the scene safe. And so none of these things can trigger the dog or, or shut it down. Um, <clears throat> nerve strength is a really important thing. And we get out there and we're hunting. Uh, you know, I, I, we train the hunt drive. They're hunting for scent. They're hunting for that scent cone. And um, they hit it and hopefully you got a high prey drive dog and they, they switch and, and they, they narrow in and, you know, the ultimate dog to me is one that dig, digs and tugs and doesn't require a lot of help from the handler. It's completely independent. Um, but uh, there's different levels of that out there. You know, I think as we talked about earlier, there's, there's a lot of a lot of star folks are not ready to handle a high dri- high prey drive dog. It comes yeah. it comes with a cost, as you guys all know. Yes. If you can hear mine <laughs> talking to me right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so those yeah, of us who are like my age. How how old are you, bud? I'm 47. Okay, so those guys are our age, a little bit older, listen to this, maybe even a little bit younger. You know, we grew up with the whole idea of the avalanche dog. It's that St. Bernard with a jug of booze underneath his, you know, under his chin. And, and I don't know if that was portrayed as a, as a U.S.-type avalanche dog or, or in the Swiss Alps or whatever. So when you started getting into this, what, what kind of breeds are you seeing being worked back in the day when you started? So... Yeah, so the St. Bernard thing is actually like the first known avalanche dog was a St. Bernard that the monks at the St. Bernard Monastery in Switzerland trained. And if you go over there, his name is Barry, and he's actually stuffed under glass in the monastery. And it's like the 1600s or something. Oh, and it wait, doesn't look what? anything. Yeah, that dog, <laughs> that, that very first avalanche dog is like in under glass at the St. Bernard Monastery in Switzerland, like, and there. And, and, um, it doesn't look anything like what we think of a St. Bernard today. It looks more like a mix between a Mastiff and a Great Pyrenees. It's a big dog, um, Pauline, not the goofy things that we see today. So that's, the, the, like, that's where that came from. Like that, that image is not wrong. It just is not very modern. Um, when I got into this, it was primarily German Shepherds and um, Labrador Retrievers. Um, really quickly about that time, it was getting real hard to find healthy German shepherds. And we were all figuring out that, you know, running up and down these mountains is hard on these dogs. And um, hip dysplasia was putting more dogs out of work than than we could keep working. And, you know, it evolved pretty quickly to retrievers and goldens. Um, You know, I I, I tell ski resorts all the time. I do some consulting on buying. Like, Like your best bet at a ski resort is get a field trials lab. You know, for, for that ski resort environment and for the for the lack of handler experience, it's your best bet. Um, over the years, cattle dogs, um, people keep screwing around with duck pullers, um, despite most of our best recommendations against them. Um, you know, cattle dogs have, have their challenges. Um, they think too much, I think, is really the problem. Um, <clears throat> And um, a handful of us have messed with Mal. The first, the first Mal I got exposed to was over in Switzerland. It was actually a long-haired Severn. Um, you know, but I, I think that any, any high-prey drive dog can be, can be taught this work. It's just whether or not it can function in a mountain environment or not. Um, there's a lot of mixed breeds out there. People want to go rescue dogs from the, from the kennel and bring them into this world, and I always – Try and steer them away from that, you know. Um, these days, it's you know the recommendation is known breeds. Go with go with good goldens, field trial goldens, because there's a lot of bad goldens out there. And field trials labs. Um, and if you're an experienced handler, 
great. Try them out. Um, but um, most of the handlers I'm around in this business, I don't think have the nerve strength to manage a uh, high drive mouth. Um, and that's not a knock on them. That's just the reality of the situation. It's a different dog, as you guys well know. Oh, yeah. So what's one of the things that you're seeing? Um, and I think I know what you're going to say, but <laughs> what that you're seeing, um, and we're going to talk a little bit this after we come back from the break, but um, that fail a lot of dogs that um, want to come into one of these programs. You know, I, I think the biggest thing is the, the dogs that fail are super handler dependent because they lack confidence and they lack drive to whatever the reward is, right? Like, like it doesn't really matter if it's drugs or bombs or live fines or dead fines or whatever. Like, you got to be completely independent of the handler and have the confidence to go in. Like, it's the dog's job to sell me on the find. It's not my job to reinforce it. And when handlers start reinforcing it, then the dog loses more confidence, and this is a vicious circle. And um, you know, I, I, I've seen just about every breed in this in this business now. Some are better than others, but. Most of the time, it's, you know, a dog that won't engage a quarry, you know, um, without handler encouragement, ultimately is probably not going to work out in this in this world, regardless of breed. Yeah. You know, and like I said, we'll talk about this more later, but um, that's one of the things that Eric and I find on the patrol side, and especially on um, some of the building searches and area searching and stuff. Um, and you know, one thing that I'm constantly yelling at my handlers and I hear Eric talk to all the guys at HRD especially tracking, um, you know, we're telling them like, get out from under, get away from the fucking dog, get away from him and let him work away from you. He has to be used to working alone. Um, in your yep. context, it's a little different, right? Like the dog is there. He's got to commit to human odor without being reinforced from the handler, without being shown, everything else, right? On the patrol side, you know, we're sending dogs in and, you know, w- we don't want dogs to drive tactics. So if we decide to send the dog into a building search and the dog encounters somebody. We don't abandon safety and then, you know, we don't index weapons and just you know walk straight up to the dog without clearing rooms that the dog has gone by and, you know, everything else. So... You know, one of the things that's really big for us is something that we call grip durability, where um, we make sure that the dog is able to maintain, you know, a grip for two, three, four, five, ten minutes. I'm not saying they were have to do that in deployment, but the dog has to be used to working alone and not being reinforced from the handler. Uh, but it's interesting you say that because, I mean, I can see in your situation, too, where if you send a dog into a slide path that could still be active, you know, if the dog needs constant reinforcement from the handler then you're also exposing yourself to the slide path as well. So at least if the dog pinpoints, then you move in, you can recover or save somebody, and then you move out as quickly as possible. So it's another safety thing just like it is on our side. Yeah, and there's a whole other scenario where it might be, you know, we generally try to deploy in, you know, teams of, so a dog, a handler, and a tech, or or an assistant, whatever you want to call this person. But, like, if if I go out on, if I get called on a first response and I put my dog to work, I might be using my avalanche transceiver or doing various other things during that search. You know, I'm not a hundred percent focused on my dog all the time. And if my dog gets on a find, I want my dog to stay there for as long as it takes for me to get over there because I might be doing something entirely different. You know, I might be on a transceiver signal and, and resolving that. And my dog's digging on someone else way over there. I want my dog to stay there until I go there and say, good dog out. And we, and we go, you know, and whether that's, whether that's grabbing the person's arm because they don't have a tug in their hand or whatever it is, 
great. You know, the dog, the person's out of the snow and my dog is committed, didn't bail on that fine because I wasn't paying attention. You know, that's like the ultimate thing. We train all these people to is like, like any given moment, you're not going to have eyes on your dog when it's doing the thing. Cause you actually have something that you have to pay attention to. And whether it's avalanche danger or a transceiver signal or whatever is going on, a dog that's not fully committed to, we call it victim loyalty in our, in our world. Like, like I want a dog that, that, I literally have to drag off that person, um, you know, and tell them to go back to work or whatever it is we're doing that will stay there until I say we're done. And, and whether that's five minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes, then so be it. And and that's, I think, a really, really important thing. And until you've actually been on one of these missions and realize, like, how much shit is going on out there, the value of that victim loyalty is not always apparent to folks. Well, and that's another topic that uh, some of the stuff that I was involved in where there was an unknown number of subjects um, that wasn't sure if they had avalanche equipment on and you're getting conflicting reports. So it could be three, it could be five, two could be wearing beacons, you know, and at that point, you know, I've seen even during validation tests with um, experienced teams where it's a blind test and they say, unknown number of subjects don't know what the avalanche is and you know guys get super fucking fixated on and this has a canine component too this they get super fixated on an avalanche uh, on a transceiver um yep. signal and they end up finding that the transceiver had been broken away from the like the body and they spent all this time and all this resources chasing that. And then instead of looking, going back to basics and saying, this is where the slide started, this is where the person was last seen, yada, yada, yada. And so it's interesting that, you know, you, you have the, what, we, what you guys call, um, what did you call it? <laughs> there victim, some, loyalty. Some victim loyalty. And, yeah. you know, we have commitment, we call it commitment to odor or commitment to a specific yeah. odor. And so it's a, it's a very common thing, which we'll talk about this in a minute in terms of selection um, and why we're not that too far apart. <laughs> no, I, 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 think that, I think that we're not. And I think, you know, the other, the other thing is, like, like, I've been on searches where I've worked my dog for three straight eight-hour days because we don't know how many people are there. And you know, like, like how often do you work your dog eight hours a day? Like in, in your stress and the dog is stressed and they're not finding anything. Yeah. If you don't have that confidence in the dog because they start pawing at everything on day three. Like they're like, shit, man, I haven't found this thing. It's gotta be out here. They start getting frustrated too. And like, if you don't believe in your dog, if you don't trust your dog, you're gonna start digging holes all over the place. And um, it's really important. And I, I have a drill I run um, where every time I get a handler that talks too much to his dog, I tell him to give me their e-collar. I tell him to put the e-collar e on their neck and hand me the remote. Because every time you talk to your dog, I'm going to zap you. Because that seems to be the only way to get it through your head to shut up and let your dog work. Because it's doing its job. <laughs> Eric has some funny stories about e-collars <laughs> with handlers. <laughs> 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 Twice you got to be a consultant that's harder to fire <laughs> right yeah or tell you or trust you guys aren't bitches but um <laughs> so one, one thing we we've done some tracking episodes and talked about some things like that but the one thing we never really get into during those episodes or i talk about in my handler schools and everything is um the effects of snow versus ice uh versus uh, things like that on odor and odors coming out. So when you have, um, what do you, what can you talk about, describe 
that you see the different, um, I, I don't know if I want to call it texture of the snow or or density or whatever, what it does to, and maybe the outside temperature is an effect, but what do you see, like what are your optimal conditions to find and, you're, when, and when you go out there and you're like, fuck, we're in deep shit? So, yeah, so dry snow, like what we got here in Colorado where I am right now, or in, in the Utah and the Wasatch, generally has more pore spaces, less dense, so there's more places for odor to move up through the snowpack. Um, temperature seems to have a dramatic effect on that. Um, if when it gets super cold, nothing's moving. When it gets too warm, it seems like nothing's moving. There's a there's a window, and I don't know that I can define exactly what that window is, but um, it definitely helps. Denser snow, like like with big avalanches and the snowpack's really deep or really densely, sometimes it takes a day or two for scent to get to the surface that the dog can actually respond to. Um, the other thing is because of the way avalanche blocks fill in and there's different air spaces, they might hit that odor and start digging, you know, 18 feet away from the find because that's just where it traveled to the snowpack and actually makes it to the surface. It's, it's pretty interesting to watch, you know, when you get dogs out of these, these, um, kind of set up training drills and start moving them into things that are more realistic, how much they, they really have to work to figure out. They always look for the, you know, they want to, they want to find the easy way in. Um, they want to find a shortcut. And so that affects it. You know, I was just in Juneau, Alaska where the snow is really wet and it was raining on the snow every day. Um, we actually did a big disaster drill with the Juneau search and rescue folks. Um, cause they have an urban avalanche interface where avalanches actually run into neighborhoods there. And we have broken pallets and spices and gasoline and pizzas and all sorts of shit all over the site. Um, and it was pouring rain in the dark while we're doing that. Um, that seemed to really affect scent rise through that really wet, saturated snow. Um, but it didn't shut it down. You know, it's no different than a water dog getting out on a boat and finding a drowning victim or something else. You know, that scent moves through everything. I think it's just um, giving it an appropriate amount of time to get there and understanding how all these different things affect, you know, we call it scent rise because generally people are buried. So we're waiting for the scent to come to the surface. Um, but you know what, like when we do a validation drill, we generally, depending which organization you look at, someone's got to be buried in the snow for 20 minutes in order to give the dog a fair chance to have enough odor to actually find it and pinpoint it and dig. Um, but I've also done drills with someone buried for five minutes and the dog nails them. Um, you know, I think that, I think that the, like this new research, they're talking about dogs probably are detecting heat changes as well. Or, um, there might be some of that involved in, in this avalanche work too. Cause I guarantee you a person buried in the snow is, has way different heat signature than, um, than the snow around it. Um, and so it's, yeah, it, snow conditions are big, um, and the size of the avalanche is really important, and depth of burial. You know, sometimes I know we worked a site a bunch of years ago with three fatalities. Um, we didn't find those guys till the spring. When they melted out, they estimated those guys were buried more than 25 feet deep. Multiple dogs out there. Um, yeah, most yeah, probes aren't even it, that long. Yeah, yeah that's, that's deep. It, it was, you know, and, and the flip side is people are, you know, the the Swiss and the Germans and the French and the Austrians, like, like those guys have all the cool dog avalanche dog stories because they deal with avalanches look maybe a thousand times more than we do that have people human involvement. 
Um, but you know, there's been deep burials, there's been deep detections with dogs. Um, but sometimes it's, you know, just understanding air flows and air, air patterns and wind and just working your dog in a tight enough pattern to give him a chance to actually find that thing. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you say that too. Um, that's one of the things that, you know, we always like we're worried about was time on and how deep and big the slide. And, um, we, there was a couple, not any of the ones that I was involved in. We had a couple guys that were buried for up to an hour, but they were all at the time. I don't even know if black diamond still makes these things. They're called the Avalung. Oh yeah. I was, uh, I was a test dummy for that thing. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a whole, whole other, uh, that's a whole other sidebar. We could go down. I'm, I'm yeah, but, painfully aware of that thing. So for the people listening, it was basically <laughs> this thing you would wear on the outside of your ski shit. And it was on the out, and so people die in avalanches um, from ice masking. So you're like, um, as you exhale, like your breath basically freezes and like over your face, and you fucking suffocate, or you die from getting crushed. Um, so assuming you live, um, when you exhale, you have to have a way for that to carbon monoxide and stuff to get away from you and to prevent your breath from freezing your face. And uh, so these things you put it in your mouth, like if you're in the ability to have the ability to put it in your mouth so that you, as you're in getting caught in a slide and, uh, they had a couple of guys recovered, um, over the five or six years I was there that had those things, um, that were in the half hour and 40 minute range. Um, but yeah, I mean, do they still sell those? I don't even know. I haven't, I haven't been involved in that in 15 they years. Do. They do. And they do. And the technology has evolved a little bit. Like now they're integrated into your pack and some other stuff. And, and, um, you know, like when I was doing stuff with those guys, I, I spent two hours buried in the snow. Um, it was horrible. Yeah. I, I think nope. I have PTSD <laughs> and flashbacks from that shit. But, um, yeah, it, it's, you know, I think that all this stuff we're doing, um, I, I really got to say, like in the last five years, we've really started to evolve the avalanche world and we're paying attention to the detection stuff. Like, like I look at the detection work you guys do and other people do and like, the tiny amount of odor that these dogs are detecting and locating. Oh, and yeah. I think of like someone buried in the snow, has got to be like a, like a spotlight shining out of the snow, right in the dog's face. Right. But there's so many other complexities involved in it. Um, plus it's just like having the handler smart enough to understand airflow and, and working and, you know, we're gritting your dog to give your dog a chance to find it. I will tell um, you that um, Eric and I's main problem all the time is finding handlers smart enough. <laughs> we, I mean, I, I I yell at my guys a lot, and I'm like, "What are you?" <laughs> like, so no, my, it, uh, it's a canine team for a reason. So my my mentor Dan O'Connor, um, his thing was always, you know, he always liked to remind folks the dumb end of the leash is not attached to the dog, you know, and and I think mm -hmm. that people people sometimes get a little sensitive about that, but most dog problems I encounter because handlers are fucking it up somewhere you know, assuming they got the right dog right the program which um, the handler the handler's fucking it up somewhere that which there's a <coughs> we're, since we're going to come back here in just a second we're going to pick up exactly what it is and we're going to go into um some of the handling stuff and then some of the uh selection stuff that we were talking about before we started recording so uh everybody chill out and listen don't fast forward through these i swear to god uh and yeah we'll be back in just a second all right, guys, Scottsdale, Arizona, 2020 hits. Uh, first of all, congratulations to Jeff Barrett, one of the owners of hits, uh, for his retirement. Jeff's oh, yeah. a good dude. Um, 
Ted and I are going to be instructing there this year. It's the best conference out there, period. It's yep. the biggest and the best. Um, it's in Scottsdale. Never been there. Can't wait. You know, it's in the desert, and the hotel has a wave pool. So, guys, we can go surf. All you dudes can be out there, you know, with your dad bods and all that stuff, um, hanging out. Ted, Here, when and where? Can. What are we doing? <laughs> Scottsdale, Arizona, <laughs> uh, August 18th to the 21st, 2020. Uh, yeah, everybody can bring their night their their night shift tan out and surf in the middle of the desert. <laughs> it's uh, hits <laughs> canine, letter K number nine, dot net. Get signed up. I think about six weeks before uh, tickets go up. or So be sure to... Uh, Head on over. And if you were part of a Patreon member of ours, we gave away a free uh, pass this year, too. So also pays to be a Patreon member because you could go for free. Well, at least the the, the uh, ticket price would be free. So, yeah. Uh, one of our other sponsors that we're really stoked about and has been with us for a long time is Ray Allen. Ray Allen has been around forever. And it's not just for police dogs. It's for working dogs, pets. Uh, bird dogs, gun dogs, and of course, police dogs and sport dogs. But they have everything from leashes to handler equipment to uh, we actually do the muzzles for them, the uh, Ramtech muzzles here, uh, the working dog dragon ones there. So, yeah, those are uh, fantastic. If you use the discount code working dog radio, uh, you'll get 10% off. Um, and it's rayallen.com. Head on over, hit them up, order something. I'm a knee collar guy, right? I train all my dogs on knee collars. And I use, for all my working dogs, man, it's Dogtra. That's all it is, Dogtra. Uh, the, I, I maintain over and over the 1900S is the best collar on the market for police dogs. 1900S by Dogtra. It can, you can get a Molly attachment for your vest for the uh, controller. And uh, I, I love the 1900S. Ted, talk about the ball popper that you love. Oh, yeah, the ball popper and the ball popper pro. It's a popper and a dropper. You can tie multiple of them together, I think eight at a time, and it'll launch a tennis ball about waist height, and then you can load up to three to drop them. And I hide them. I actually modify them and put magnets all over them and stick them under cars, under our bus, and all kinds of stuff. We put them inside cars to launch tennis balls out when we're training dogs. Batteries are rechargeable on the pro, and it's got a little bit uh, shorter response time on the remote, so you get a better response from the dog and the window is much shorter in terms of the reaction from the unit but yeah i love that thing uh we gave away some of those also during our patreon giveaway uh christmas last year so and the year before that so there's some people out there have gotten that love them so i like i like them a lot for sure yeah we have a discount code if you check them out go to dogtra.com discount code wdr10 for 10 percent off a single item over 200 dollars. dogtra.com yeah, you know, one of the sponsors has been with us since the beginning is Highland Canine out in North Carolina. It's the Pergasons, Jason and Aaron. Love those guys. Jason's actually been on the podcast before. He's an instructor at a lot of the conferences we go to. Fantastic trainer. Uh, they run a school there that accepts a VA, and they've got customers from all over the country and all over the world. Uh, they've developed programs for um, African nations, and uh, have had lots of dogs come through. Uh, they do green dogs. They do seminars. They do top-to-bottom police dogs with handler schools included. Uh, and because of that, they've got on-site living accommodations for handlers during handler schools. So top-to-bottom, front-to-back, Beginning to end, they got you covered. Head over to tacticalpolicecaninetraining.com. That's letter K number nine. And check out everything they've got going on in the seminars coming up. We actually gave away a $500 gift certificate during uh, our Christmas giveaway in 2019. So, yeah, be sure to head over. Tacticalpolicecanine, letter K number nine, training.com. So one of the best things that we ever have gotten on this podcast is our relationship with VetCare and their product, QuickDerm. We make no 
secret about it, I tell everybody. Um, they're like, yeah, my dog's got this going on. This this injury got cut here. Do that. I'm like, get Quick Derm by Vet Care. It's it's like magic elixir. It really is. It's crazy how good it works and how fast it is as advertised. It's one of my uh, favorite relationships that we have. Quick Derm by Vet Care. Um, Ted, I know you use it on yourself. I think. Yeah, I got nuked by a dog last year and had to get some stitches, but it definitely helped clean it up. Uh, in fact, you have a buddy that's up close mm-hmm. to you that owns a. Uh, pet business that had a dog come in that he used it on to keep this dog. The, the problem from getting worse that the owner didn't realize had that had the dog had when he got dropped off, uh, which is kind of what this stuff's about. It prevents little things from becoming big problems. So, you know, dogs cut themselves, especially working dogs. You know, stuff gets stuck in their paw. Happy tails, another common one. Um, they get their muzzles all torn up and stuff from dealing with uh, crates and kennels. It's super easy to apply. Works really well. You only have to do it once a day. It's not like rocket science. So, yeah, head over to vetcare.us and use the discount code 10WDR for a 10% off discount off your first order. Speaking of easy, that's why I like vetcare. But also easy is Horizon Structures. We get information uh, passed to us all the time and questions passed to us all the time about, oh, what's the best kennel to use? Do you use this? Do you use you know, these pre-made panels, whatever else? If you're going to invest the money to create a commercial, whether it's the police side or whatever, invest the money in Horizon Structures. It's literally like plug and play. So you have the pad set up, you tie it into sewer and water, they show up with a flatbed truck, they drop that sucker off and it's plugged in. You can put dogs in it an hour after they leave. It's fantastic. Eric, what do you think of those things? I, I tell you this. I remember you built that uh, that one kennel oh, yeah. that you had. I guarantee there, yeah. you, if you knew the Horizon Structures was available, you'd have just done that. It's I can't, um, I'm looking everywhere for a kennel, and there's just never, anything's not perfect. You know, it's just not working out for me. So I'm trying to find a, a good spot where I can get Horizon Structures. I've been on their website, horizonstructures.com, went through everything, looked at their tutorials, looked at their videos, um, Dude, it's you drop it, put dogs in it. So how simple is that? It's amazing. They have financing available, everything, horizonstructures.com. Yeah, and it's custom. You can literally do yes. whatever you want. Like from insane, from mild to wild, insane to normal. I mean, anything you want. But yeah, horizonstructures.com. Hit them up. All right, everybody. We are back. Working Dog Radio broadcasting The Bite. Um, commercial free for Patreon. And with some amazing sponsors for everybody else, go back and be sure to look at. It. I think we're gonna. I'm gonna tell Alicia we should name this episode "Nope" because that's me back here listening to all this bullshit. Nope, nope, I'm not doing that. Two hours Cold. in the snow. Nope, suffocating in the snow. Nope. Uh, Thirty below. Nope, not happening. Breaking all so, your limbs. Dying before we from get being back into the. Before we get back into that, into the avalanche, and, and I want to talk about the wilderness stuff that you do and, and um, some of the back and forth, to f- settle an argument that we have with Alicia, isn't it true that human remains people are just ghouls that like to keep thumbs in their freezers? Uh, true? That's what I thought. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. Alicia has a human remains dog. It's fucking gross. <laughs> I don't have any body parts in my fridge, by the way. So, no, it's disgusting. Mm. I don't either, but I have. She fed him to you. Oh, yeah, I, right. I have friends that do. I don't. I don't have any in my fridge. So. No, so <laughs> going through your background here, you do you do not only the avalanche dogs, but you do the wilderness search and rescue, and and it sounds to me like from our conversations that sometimes that's both. 
that people may be doing both or switching from one to the other. What do you see the difficulties in training a wilderness dog to go to the avalanche and vice versa? You know, most of it is pretty similar. Um, you know, the known scent trailing versus air scent wilderness dogs is obviously a, a different route and a different, a different path. But the biggest challenge I run into is when people train a refund in a wilderness search, meaning the dog goes and finds the, whatever they're supposed to find, they come back to the handler and then they bring the handler back to it. That tends to lead to problems um, on the alert in the snow where generally we want the dogs to commit to that odor and dig straight through to the victim or quarry and independent of the handler. Where the biggest problem I see is where the dog gets confused because the two searches, I don't think the dog gives a shit whether there's snow on the ground or it's dirt and mud. The two searches are so similar, the dog gets confused about how it's supposed to respond to that odor and that trained final response, the dog gets confused about it. Um, you know, it, it just isn't sure which one it's supposed to do. It gets stuck somewhere in the middle, staring at the handler going, well, I found it, but I'm not sure what you want me to do. And so one of the things I encourage folks, is if you're going to go down both those paths, use some, you know, some distinct different command you know um i've exposed my dog to hrd a little bit i use a very different command for that because i want an obvious different response you know no one wants you to see your dog grab a hold of a body part and start playing tug with it um and so i I train that different yeah well (laughs) but but that's you know i i think that i think sometimes Mm -hmm. people get so hung up in this world like to me search or whatever find or whatever command you're going to use is just another obedience command with a desired outcome, right? All you're doing is reinforcing an outcome with the dog. And so there's no reason you can't use multiple searches. I, one, one problem that arises in this star world is everyone wants to have their dog know 37 different profiles. And in my experience, they generally suck at all of them. Um, <laughs> Get good yes. at one, master master one, and then think about whether or not you want to add a second one in there. You know, and, and I always ask, when someone comes to me and says, I want to get an avalanche dog, my first question is why? You know, define your why, and then I can help you pick a breed and, and go pick a puppy and do all this other stuff. But if you tell me you want to get an avalanche dog because it's going to get you chicks at the ski resort because ski patrollers with dogs are better looking than ski patrollers without. That's a fact. I'm, I'm, it, yeah, well, you know, but, <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's the reality of this world, you know, like, like most of these patrollers are buying the dogs on their own. They're, they're shouldering. You know, most avalanche dogs are affiliated with ski resort. These guys and gals go out and buy the dogs. Sometimes they spend thousands of dollars on really high-end breeders and dogs, and sometimes they get a dog at the pound. And um, <clears throat> these folks shoulder most of the financial burden and the training burden on their own. And um, I think sometimes they are a little bit misguided about why they get into it. Not always, but, but often. And, and, and there is definitely a cool factor to being a ski patrol with a dog. Um, there's also a, you just added like a thousand times to your workload for no extra right. money. You know, you bring up an interesting point. So a lot of times, cause you know, where you're at, you kind of operate in a semi quasi private, like, um, you know, some of the ski resorts, most of the ski resorts are privately owned and they're leased on public land. But, you know, and the ski resort employees are not government employees like a traditional canine handler would be. Some of them are. I mean, I've worked with both um, and I've seen both. But for the most part, they typically are private employees. So the dogs are owned by either the ski resort or they're owned by the handler. Um, Whereas in our side, and especially in like the central portion of the country for search and rescue, the dogs, especially for the FEMA teams, are run by government agencies. So 
when we start talking about that shouldering the cost of a law, uh, well, for the most part in law enforcement, the shouldering of the cost is done a lot for, um, by the actual agency. And I'm skipping over a lot of that because there's fundraisers and then dogs are donated and all this other shit that goes on. But there is a very central theme. And Eric talks about it quite a bit about people trying to buy their way into canine um, and the law enforcement side. I see it. I should, I had the conversation today. Somebody called and they're like, well, we have a donated dog. And I'm like, Ugh, okay. And you know, there's this misconception. I think that any dog, as long as it's a German shepherd or Malinois or that shepherd or whatever, can be a police dog and that just ain't the case and you know and i and i think there's a large misconception too in the search and rescue world and i see it more there because the certification process for you guys is extremely arduous and long and involved and i don't ever want to hear my canon handlers bitch about their 30 minute nap water certification ever or usbca certification ever ever again as the fur the fema stuff and the validation stuff is days and is years of fucking training and a lot of times like you said them dudes and girls are not being paid extra for it a lot of times um especially in like your world a lot of times it's, it's super important so starting out with the right dog is extremely important so talk a little bit about how you know you've seen some people that are dedicated to a dog that they probably shouldn't be or dedicated to them for the wrong reasons i guess well, yeah. So, I mean, obviously there's a massive emotional attachment to dogs, right? And, and everyone, you know, part of the problem that we run into when you get into this world is because most people are shouldering the burden on their own and they own their dogs. There's a, there's a really blurry line between working tool, working resource and pet, right? And so when I tell someone that you got the wrong dog, the first thing they hear is you just said, I have a bad dog. It's like, well, no, that's not what I said. I'm like, you got a great dog. You just got the wrong dog for this work. Like go, go be a therapy dog or whatever it is you want to do, but, but you don't have the right thing. And so, you know, it got beaten into my head early on. My, my mentor, Dan O'Connor, who's no longer with us. Um, he was, who was at Alta and, and the early Wasatch Blackfish Rescue guy, like he was big in labs and I would spend the first year before I got my own dog. I spent the entire summer like following him around every field trials, every breeder, testing puppies left, right, and down. And he had every, you know, at the time we're talking mid nineties, he had every like different puppy test out there. And he, and he came up with his like version of it that I've dumbed down even further for, for when I'm doing this stuff. But, you know, he was really researching. Like he wouldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't even talk to a breeder if he couldn't see both parents run. Like, like there were things that, that other people weren't even paying attention to. And he would show me things. And so, so right dog, like, if I can get a seven-week-old puppy to, to, to rag with a piece of a T-shirt or give me the death shake, I'm pretty sure I, I, I got a good foundation. I got a good start right there. I got a dog that's got some hunt, dog that's got some prey. You know, I look, I do some various things to test nerve strength, and I know that seven weeks is not always a guarantee on nerve strength. But back to those things we talked about, snowmobiles, snowcats, helicopters, bombs going off, snowboarders spraying the dog in the face, little kids running out of ski school, jumping your dog on a chairlift. Like all these things are high stress environments for the dog. And if you have a dog that lacks nerve strength and any one of these things shuts your dog down, you know, I'm a working dog. You got a, you got a, a dog that you're babysitting and dragging around the mountain. Um, yep. And so those things are tough. And, and I think that, you know, you could go 3000 layers deeper into puppy testing. Um, and, but if you start with a dog with no prey drive, 
If they don't have prairie drive at seven weeks, they're not going to have it at seven months. They're not going to have it at two years old. It's just not going to be there. And, and you're going to, you know, like you're going to fight it all the time. And, and you know, they'll try food, they'll try all these various things, but you'll never see that mind-blowing dog that's just going to, you know, like I like intensity in, in an avalanche dog because there's life on the line. And I want a dog that goes out there and is confident, works hard, and attacks the hole and digs and, and you know, my, my dog will tug with anything. You know, you could hand him a, you could hand him a, a baseball bat covered in barbed wire and nails, and I'm pretty sure he would grab onto that thing and tug um, or your arm or whatever it is going to be. And, and, and that's what I want. And that's what I look for. And I start with the puppies. And, and so known breeds, you know, like I don't understand, and you guys probably see this too, I don't understand the need to experiment with breeds. Like there are breeds that have been shown oh, to yeah. be proficient at this. Like, like, I don't know why you got to step outside the lines because you want to try your Icelandic shepherd or whatever the hell you want to bring to this work because <laughs> it does this thing, you know? And like, like I tell you, ski resorts, Labradors and retrievers, like golden right. retrievers, like there's your best bet. If you got a really advanced handler and you can find a healthy German shepherd, great, or maybe a Mal. Cattle dogs, I like cattle dogs. They're great. I've seen some really great cattle dogs, but cattle dogs come with challenges too, you know? Cattle dogs... How does, a, how does a cattle dog get a get a twenty five hundred pound animal to do its thing? They it fucking it bite people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they bite you know, people. And, 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 and there's, I've seen a lot of cattle dogs that are good search dogs washed out of programs because a little kid from ski school runs up to say hi to the dog and gets nipped in the face. And it's not yep. a it's not it's not a it's not an aggressive German Shepherd bite, but it's a nip in the face, and that dog's career is over. You know, yeah, like I, no ski resort no ski resort is going to take on that liability, and it's a it takes a smart handler to handle a cattle dog. I think I don't think I'm smart enough to handle cattle dogs. They think too much. Yeah, you know, they, and they, they problem solve. Before the break, you mentioned too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going up and down mountains is really hard on them and everything else. And one thing that and there's like a misconception I think in Eric and I's side of this industry is that that a patrol dog or a multi-purpose canine for the special operations guys um, is kind of like the pinnacle of canine in terms of like training and handling and all this other stuff. So you're doing detection work, whether it's narcotics or um, explosives, and then you're also doing apprehension work and tracking. So the dog works in like three and sometimes four utilities. And that's often kind of seen as the pinnacle of our industry, and it's really not. Um, And there's a misconception, too, that only the best dogs get selected for that portion. Um, Overwhelmingly, the vast majority of those dogs are herders, German Shepherd, Dutch Shepherd, or Malinois. Um, There's a very few cases, and... That shit's hard enough to do anyway. What Eric and I do on our side is hard enough anyway. And like, I don't try and reinvent the wheel. Like, I'm like, it's hard enough with a good dog. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, and and I I think there's this misconception on our end that well, if the dog washes out of a dual purpose program, he can do search and rescue work. And that just ain't the case. Um, one yeah, thing you did mention about the answer is maybe right. Right. And, you know, the one thing you did mention, too, and if you're a search and rescue or you're a ski patrol handler listening to this um, and you're listening to what he's saying, take this into account. You're typically not a dog person already, and you're going to spend thousands of hours and a lot of money training this dog. And if it comes from a questionable background and this work is hard on their body, you'll spend all this time and money on a dog that may have its career cut short because of poor genetics. Because the work you're asking us to do causes excessive wear and tear on your body, just like it does on me. <laughs> and then the dog suffers from a life, uh, or I'm sorry, not a life, but a career injuring or a career ending 
you know, ailment by the time they're five years old when they should work till they're eight or nine years old just because you got it from a breeder or you had something else. So, you know, you're talking about your, you know, your mentor telling you, like looking at the parents run and everything else. And that's a huge portion of it, knowing where the dogs come from, because we do invest so much time and money and effort into these dogs that, you know, yeah, it's a great story to get a rescue or this or that or the other, or try and recreate the wheel. Use a dog that's not really... <laughs> made for this work and yeah you can do it but at what cost so you know i i I want i wanted to say that and make sure that that gets said and that everybody hears it and it's the same thing on our side i mean it's the same thing like you know on our side i have to give warranties for health for police departments i can't do that if i don't know where they come from (laughs) i mean And I could I could certify the dog, and I could be certified two days later. Get something weird with a spine, and they're like, "Oh, and then I got to replace an eighteen thousand dollar dog." And I'm like, "Yeah, that's fucking great." So no, it's we it's, health is a huge aspect in these dogs. Yeah, and I think I you know as I tell people, like none of this is a guarantee. Like no puppy selection test is a guarantee of success. But you're hedging your bet in your favor massively, but by using known breeds, but known breeders, and known backgrounds, you know and. I'm not a big fan of the AKC for a bunch of reasons, but but having a paper trail to understand the health and genetics of your dog is really worth the time to research it. You know, there's there's value there, and and it, you know, like because you are going to put a, a shit ton of hours into this. You know, as I as I tell people, like I, I like my my first working dog was a major contributing factor to my marriage failing because because I spent so much time training <laughs> that dog. You know, and, and, and I can laugh about it with my, with my ex now, but, you know, that was 20 years ago, but it's real. Like, if you really want to do this well, I don't care what profile you're going into, it, it is a massive commitment of time and money, and you're going to get out of it what you put into it. And, and if you start with it with a shit dog, or, I, I, sorry, not if you start with the wrong dog, you're probably not going to get what you, what you put into it out of it. You know, and there's, there's so many variables to this, you know, a dog, I've seen two really good dogs careers ended at two years old. Cause they got cut by a ski edge by a handler that wasn't thinking about these sharp ass knives on their feet. And those dogs had serious yep. tendon and, and connective tissue damage that they never recovered from, you know, like people give me shit all the time. Like why I only ski with my dog on my back or in physical control. It's like, cause I'm not going to sacrifice 18 months of work to a ski cut. Yes. Like he can, he can, he can run other places. He ain't running on a ski hill with a bunch of people all over the place. So let me ask you this. Um, you know, a, a lot of people do search and rescue and different things with no real intentions of, of making money or anything like that. But what do you tell the guy who is living in Vermont and wants to go out to Colorado to be a full-time avalanche dog. Can you make a living? Will your creditors be happy or are you just going to be broke? <laughs> yeah. There's no money in snow. I mean, I mean, I think that, I think that there's, there's not much money in dogs either, but there's way more money in drugs and bombs than there is in snow. Um, you know, and, and, and I, there's some other worlds that I've had to some like counter poaching and some, you know, counter contraband stuff i've had the the wonderful opportunity to like to on the fringe be associated with some of those guys and like yeah there's money in dogs and it ain't, it ain't avalanche dogs um <clears throat> you know in the reality is in the grand scheme of things not that many people die in avalanches in this country every year and um 
there hasn't been a live dog fun in the U.S. in a number of years, um, just because of the time thing. But yeah, like you've got to do this. This is a passion. This is something that you want to, you know, like for me, I'm not a even, I don't even work with a um, actual SAR group or have an official affiliation anymore. I mean, my dog I'm training right now is mostly an experiment to see if I learned anything in the last 25 years as I've evolved this process. Um, and I've learned from so many great people and I'm like, oh yeah, that works, but I don't think this actually makes sense. And so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm experimenting with my dog. I'm actually writing a, like how to turn a dog and see if this damn thing works or not. But, um, <laughs> if you're doing this for money, you're in the wrong damn business. So at least, at least on the avalanche side of it, um, you know, I mean, I got this dog, my dog I have right now, I got because the, the breeder, um, he was on a contract to go to, to go to an air force program. He was deemed too soft and he didn't have nerve strength. I've since had him evaluated by a handful of folks like at Penn vet and other places. And they're like, I've never seen a dog like this. So I don't know what his litter mates are like, like this, this dog will go through plate glass that's lit on fire for a, for a tug or a, or a reward. Um, and so I, you know, it's just all like, does this all work? Um, cause ultimately at some point we're going to be there, you know, and, and I get, I work with the, with the sheriff here in Summit County, Colorado. I work with sheriffs in, in Utah and various other places. And I just want to provide the best resource I can to the community around me. And does it make me any money? No, it, it you know, I, I make a little money teaching courses here and there, but at the end of the day, most of these organizations are running on donations. And, and like you said, the bake sales and selling t-shirts and um, you know, most of these people are doing this because they just want to, they want to do the right thing and create a tool that's a resource to their community around them and, and their ski resorts. Some ski resorts really support their dog programs. Some ski resorts don't. It's funny you talk about like their ski resorts in Utah, like Alta actually owns their dogs. Alta buys the dogs, Alta supports the dogs. And the flip side of that is if, if a handler decides to leave, the dog stays, you know, um, they're pro cons to that. Um, you know, but I've seen it in the military the handler gets blown up dog just goes to the next handler right the dog doesn't suddenly stop working yeah. um it works if you train if you train the dogs correctly from the beginning if you don't then it's never going to work the multi-handler thing never works or the handoff never works but if you train the dogs if you do the foundation work right pretty sure i could you guys could walk in this room drag my dog outside say search and he'd go to town because he just cares about the reward at the end of the game yeah, that's one thing that go. we have an exercise that Eric does um, at every HRD, and we do it specifically to um, teach handlers, especially with dual-purpose dogs, that your dogs work for you or for themselves. They are the most opportunistic, and they don't love you. <laughs> and there's a lot of people that get their feelings hurt, and you know, I mean, yeah. I think people have a very good working relationship with their dogs, but for the most part, there is a specific drill that we do. Um, it's the amoeba drill um, that that highlights that for a lot of handlers and uh you're right i mean you know an overly or not overly but like a social dog i mean they'll go and they'll work for anybody and you know it's a super important aspect so tell us about um you started a little bit but about colt the new dog you got now yeah so i um it's magic of facebook like i wasn't really hadn't really decided i was ready to train a dog yet um i i had decided that i was gonna i wanted to train a mal um, mostly because I had a bigger expectation than even the highest drive labs were, were showing me. Um, I, uh, 
a friend of a friend sent me a message on Facebook, said, hey, there's this breeder that's got a male available, and he wasn't that far from me. So I drove up there and talked to this guy, and he's, you know, he's put some dogs in the Lackland program, some other stuff, and he had some some credentials, but he's, a, he's like, he's like, here's this dog, and um, he's like, he just doesn't, he's probably fine for what you want to do, he's just not hard enough for what we want to do. And uh, I, did, I ran through some puppy tests, I saw some things that I liked, and um, contrary to all my, what I just talked about puppy selection, I, I had a slight bit of hesitation that he wasn't going to be the right dog, but I went for it because um, I hadn't actually owned a dog in nine years. Um, drove down the road two hours and uh, pulled off at a rest stop. And at seven weeks old, it's actually funny, I got cold on the Marine Corps birthday. That was day 49 from his breeding. Um, two hours down the road, pulled off a rest stop, and I had him following me around the rest stop, tugging with me, fully engaging in all sorts of stuff at seven weeks old. And I was like, oh, maybe, maybe this is going to work. And, um, put him to work. I started doing all this stuff. You know, there's people give me a hard time because we spent a bunch of time in the playground down the street for me. And, um, they think I'm training my dog to do circus tricks. I'm like, no, this is like just trust and environmental stuff. Like I just want him to be totally confident in whatever environment I throw him into. Um, you know, and so fast forward, here he is, like, we're doing, we're doing multiple blind um, burial drills. Um, he's really guns. He's been around, he's been around big, mean, dutchy bite dogs and big, mean, dutchy, big, mean mouths and, and all that stuff. And, you know, he's, he's doing pretty good. Um, you know, he's also, um, you know, did five grand damage to the inside of my truck because I left him in there while some people were playing with puppies out in front of my truck. So, <laughs> learn, learn, that took like eight minutes, you know. So, yeah. so that learning a little up. bit about, you know, not 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 a black lab, you know, it's not a Labrador. No. And, and, and I, you know, someone's like, your dog has super separation anxiety, and I actually was like, no, I actually think he has FOMO. I think he just thinks he needs to be involved in every exciting thing going on in the world, no matter what it is. Like I don't think he gives a shit about me. If something exciting's going on, he wants to be part of it, you know. And, so he rides skiers. He's doing all this stuff, and um, we actually were going to validate a couple of weeks ago, and the weather screwed it up for us. So, um, but yeah, you know, I think it's the other thing is, you know, he's he's for this work, you know, 68 pounds. He's 18 months old. I don't need a bigger dog than this. I, everyone wants to have big dogs all the time. So, well, shit, I can't carry a bigger dog. Oh yeah, so they got to pick him up. <laughs> yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, a, I'm an old man. I can't, I can't put much more weight on my back than this. Luckily, he's fit and strong. But um, it's an interesting game. You know, I, I didn't worry about search for the first nine months. I just did, um, you know, environmental stuff. I, I, I worked at a gym. I had him around barbells getting dropped. I had him jumping on boxes. I, had him, I just made him as stable as I could. And now all this other stuff's easy. I mean, other than, other than we have a, we have a, recall problem that I think is a 18 month old teenager issue right now. Uh, he's also super defiant with the e-collar. We had a pretty interesting experience this week where I literally had to shoot the e-collar up to the top and he still looked at me and said, fuck you and ran off. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. So he, he, he's got some, he's got some nerve strength there, um, <laughs> but, uh, but he's also smart as can be. And so it's, it's a fun, it's a fun process. And, um, you know, maybe if I'm lucky, I'll, I'll get the opportunity to put him to put him in the field to work. And 
the other thing with avalanche work, you might run, you might train a dog for 10 years and never, ever have an opportunity to deploy. You know, it might just, you just might not be in the right place at the right moment. So, uh, being as this is the first Malinois, um, what, what don't you like about him other than tearing your truck up? <laughs> you, you know, there's nothing I don't like. It's just, um, I've been around other mouths. I've been around other mouths in this world. Um, mostly Canada, Canada, Switzerland. Um, you know, it's, you know, the, um, the determination and, and, and the, um, his willingness to test boundaries, despite it's clear that he understands what the outcome is supposed to be, but his willingness to constantly just put his finger in my chest and see like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fuck with you again. I'm going to fuck with you again is, um, it's interesting because I've never seen a floppier dog have this. And actually I've never owned a pointier dog that had this same determination. They're just like, you know, he sees something he wants and, damn the torpedoes he's going to go for it and you know it's it's another interesting world being in the ski resort world i've multiple times been told how harsh i'm being with my dog and it's like i don't think you quite understand the difference between that black lab over there and this you know he's all black mal which you know causes all sorts of other issues pointier black dogs freak people out oh, yeah. um but uh you know, it's like this is not the same animal. Like they might look the same, but but like like I'm not gonna break his spirit or his drive. Like I, I pretty sure I could throw him through the window next to me and he'd come back with a tail wagon wondering wondering when the next game was gonna start. Um and and that's a different world and I, I think that, you know, I recognize most handlers aren't ready for it. I'm not sure I was, but but I sure am enjoying the ride. Um and the potential just blows my mind. Like what I could get this dog to do with a little bit of encouragement is, is pretty awesome. I've never had a dog trust me like this. Yeah. Malinois definitely have a willingness to work. That is for sure. Um, the well-bred ones do. Um, so this has been super good. You know, I, I think this one will be awesome. There's a lot of crossover between what we do and what you do. And, um, you know, I super enjoyed this. Where, um, can we find you? Um, Instagram, Facebook, do you have a website for the consulting stuff? Um, yeah. Where- um, I got two Instagrams. I got my personal one, which is jkutch73. I think there's an underscore in there somewhere. And then avalanchedog.com, um, which is my website, which I, um, in my brilliance, accidentally nuked my entire website a year ago. And uh, finally just am catching my breath enough to put the whole thing back together. Um, so it's avalanchedog.com. It's out there. Um, Facebook, some other stuff. I mean, most of what I do on social media on the avalanche dog side is sharing all the stuff everyone else is involved in and some of the schools i'm involved in but um yeah those are the places to find me and uh you know i'm i'm, I'm always you know i'm always looking to expand what i'm doing so but i travel a lot around the west and train a lot of avalanche dogs and it's super fun um and you know you just hope for that one day when one of the dogs you worked with makes that that, that next live find out there lots of body recoveries not too many not too many live finds in this business Awesome. Uh, Eric, what about you? Uh, well, before I get into that, so this is the last episode that I want to hear you, Ted, say, I don't really know much about the search and rescue. You two <laughs> term nerds. I'm like fucking Googling. I can't Google fast enough. What are they talking about? So <laughs> shut up. You do know. 
So. It's like we had Ellie on. From, Anyways, <laughs> Ellie on from Signature Science. Yeah, I was like, what are we going to talk to this guy saying, about? Yeah. yeah, what are we going to talk to him about? He's a fucking genius. And then he was a good interview. He's a chemist. I was like, oh, I mean, we'll figure something out. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's funny you said that about the black point of your dog. I have a dog, Karma, in my kennel. I've had. She's a fully trained up bomb dog and the sweetest girl. And I've had her for coming on a year and no one has looked at her because she has pointy ears. Um, yeah, I have somebody yeah. coming, oddly enough, from Colorado to check her out because they don't care, which is awesome. But, um, yeah, for a year I've been feeding this dog and training her. and we're, I can't do much more. You know, I can't do anything to change her breed, but n- no one will even look at her because she has pointy ears. It's, the, it's ridiculous. I blame Hillary. It's funny. I don't know why I just do. <laughs> I, work, I, I work with this. I've done a bunch of work in the last year with this guy, Rudy, who's a pararescue, Air Force pararescue guy, and he's got this dog, Callie, um, Sardog on Instagram, who's the only DOD-owned search and rescue dog right now. And yeah. she's, a, oh, she's, wow. a brin- she's, she's a brindle duchy. And um, the two of us were walking through Vail a couple of weeks ago with our dogs and um, on leash. It's amazing how many people will walk up and say hi to the brindle duchy and shy away from the black mouth. <laughs> Even you know, they've no understanding <laughs> that it's essentially the same same dog. You know, I mean, Callie's Callie's probably ten pounds wider than Colt, but you know, they they'll run right up and stick their hand in Callie's face, and they'll look at Colt and and, and take two steps sideways, and it's like, boy, you guys, like, <laughs> I don't know if I just run up to any pointy-eared dog um, and start sticking my hand in his face. But yeah, it's it's funny how the you know the, the the other thing I get a bunch is he can't possibly be a Malinois because he's black. So that's a whole other. Our buddy <laughs> Yoris, funny, funny our, our buddy, our buddy was a handler in the Belgian military or the Belgian special police. He lives in the United States now, um, but he has black mal. In fact, I have uh, one from. Well, we had one from him, and I've got another black mal working the street here, Fruit Bat. Which, if anybody follows me online, you've seen Fruity. Her name, her name's Josta. She's a single-purpose dog in a small department close to here, but uh, she was bred by our buddy out in the East Coast, uh, Charlie Nash. Uh, super nice dog, but yeah, most people are like, "Oh, it's black." There's no such thing as a black mal. I'm like, oh, well, I mean, <laughs> no, I have one. <laughs> the, the, yeah, and I've had one. So, I mean, I, there they are. So, uh, yeah, yeah, Eric, where are you? Well, keep in mind, Jake. I'm just saying. People may be judging you and your inability to handle the dog and keeping them from getting bit. Just saying. Okay, so I can <laughs> no, be found. Fair, fair <laughs> just look, they're just making a quick judgment. Yeah, uh, I can be found at Van S K Nine in Instagram, Van S K Nine Academy on um, Facebook for mostly uh, pet stuff. Uh, HRD Police K Nine. Uh, we have every avenue for HRD Police K9 and um, Working Dog Radio on Patreon. What about you, Ted? Uh, Ted underscore Summers on Instagrams. And uh, then, yeah, like you mentioned, we've already got the one for the podcast up. So, And then Patreon. So um, we're finishing up some stuff for that, too. Uh, we got some new T-shirt designs that are done um, and uh, a new patch that I think we're going to send out right around the middle of the month. Um, so yeah, be looking for that. We've got, we've signed, we've knocked up another 20 people recently, so, um, it's growing, but yeah, um, head on over there, patreon.com, look for working dog radio, uh, and get signed up. Uh, Jake, man, this has been awesome. Uh, I know this episode is going to be good. Um, I know a lot of police guys are going to take some stuff from this. Um, and if the search and rescue people are listening to this, like there's some really good, information in this that you should listen to mainly about dog selection (laughs) and not fucking your dog up so (laughs) 
I uh, and there ain't no we, money in snow. No, that's true. No, no I, there's I, not. And there's not a ton in bombs and drugs either. So, um, yeah, stick with drugs and bombs. <laughs> uh, I think, so, I, think it's all, I think it's all in poaching and wildlife, actually. Yeah, you know, there was a guy down in I don't know Texas or something that runs some dogs out in South Africa. I think that we tried to get a hold of at one point and it kind of fell through. But he runs some kind of weird sight hound thing um, that they look for poachers. And then one of my buddies works for a uh, nonprofit in Africa that hunts down. Um, Witch doctors. Yeah, stop, I think, stop I think there's money there. I think there's money. There's money there. There's money there, but those guys are super elusive. I I, I work with I work with a group that I, I I'm friends with a guy that has a group that I I can't mention their name or yeah. anything else. But there's 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 oh, real yeah. money in real real time in that in that whole human trafficking and wildlife oh, trafficking yeah. world. And oh, it's yeah. crazy. Yes, Eric. I swear, like, well, we'll, I'll text you about it. But yeah, they they hunt down witch doctors. It's fucking crazy. Uh, they need dogs too because they're they're they, not trying they to kill these dudes because they want them to go. They want them to be tried for crimes and shit. Anyway, that's another fucking episode. We'll do that one <laughs> oh, at another yeah. point. But yeah, Jake, um, I really appreciate it, man. This episode has been awesome. Um, yeah. So everybody else, click the links in the profile. Go to sponsors. Go to Jake's website. Check out if anybody listen to this and want to get Jake out for a seminar at one of your ski resorts. Hit them up. Uh, anything else, Eric? You good? Nope. I'm good to go. Right. Thanks. Excellent. Thanks, Thanks guys. guys. Yep. One of the groups that's been with us since the beginning are the guys from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, that also host the Bravo 3 conference. Uh, that is Tripwire Operations Group. They have tons of stuff that goes boom, and they are a fantastic training facility for explosives and training of everything related to it for America's first responders, not just for police and military, but also for first responders. So head over to tripwireops.com to hit them up and see what classes they got going on. Um, and then be sure to come and see Eric and I at Bravo 3 this year in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania in October. So our very first sponsor on the podcast was Arno out at uh, ALM Suits and Canine Equipment. Uh, the other day on a Facebook group, uh, somebody asked on there, what's what's the best hidden sleeve on the market? Uh, without a doubt, it, is ALM's hidden sleeve. There's probably 10, 15 people on that post in there, got in there, ALM, ALM, ALM. It is so easy. His stuff is so good. Arno's a good dude, man. If you get a hold of him, that's the guy answering the phone. That's the guy doing all the work. ALMK9Equipment.com. I have a suit from there. Best tugs on the market. Not even close. The best tugs on the market and the best hidden sleeve. Hit up Arno, ALMK9Equipment.com. Be sure to use the discount code WDRADIO. That's all capitals for 10% off your first order. You know, one of the things about this podcast that everybody mentions that they love is the intro and exit music. And it was kind of a uh, big deal when we started the podcast to have that. And I want to say thank you personally to Brother Deeg, um, who is the artist and has graciously allowed us to use this music. And everybody be sure to head over to Brother Deeg, D-E-G-E dot net. Uh, buy a T-shirt or go to Spotify or Apple iTunes or wherever and stream his music or go and buy some. Um, he's on tour all the time. He plays Tulsa frequently. Um, I love to see him when he's here. Uh, fantastically talented artist from Louisiana uh, and has graciously allowed us to use his music. So enjoy it. Download more of it. Uh, Brother Deeg, D-E-G-E dot net. Go hit him up, guys. Thanks. You got your reasons. I got my wants. Still got that feeling, but I'm too old to die young now. 
Working Dog Radio was graciously granted permission to use this music by Brother Deeg. Be sure to check him out at brotherdeeg.blogspot.com. That's spelled brother, D-E-G-E, dot blogspot.com. Be sure to buy him a beer at Amazon, iTunes, or CD Baby, or anywhere you stream your music. Working Dog Radio was edited and co-produced by Alicia Brandt.